All right. Wonderful. There are uh, still some seats in the front, and uh, if you're looking for seats, if you don't like where you're seated, Julius, you're okay there? That's fine? All right. We'll get started. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the City. It's a joy uh, to be with you uh, at the absolutely fabulous University Club. Uh, we love this club. We've done a number of... Is there a Union League guy here? What's the problem? Uh, it's always a, a joy to do uh, our events at these different clubs. This club uh, in particular, uh, we've, uh, we've enjoyed over the years. We've had, uh, I think, no real ugliness erupting at any of our events, although I remember uh, about two years ago, you remember some of you were here, Oz Guinness uh, went after those hoodlums with the pool cue. You remember that? Yeah. It was, like, it was like a scene out of Walking Tall, you know? Buford Pusser goes to Oxford, you know? Have you heard of that? All right, get out. Um, but uh, it would, turns out they were reading blackberries during his talk, and Oz just won't put up with that. He just, he's very tall. He, can see, he could see them doing it. So don't, uh, don't do that this evening. Of course, we're not going to have that kind of ugliness erupt tonight, because as you probably already know, uh, Roger Scruton does not fool around with such civilized niceties as billiard cues. No, he, he dispatches scoundrels and ruffians with a cudgel. A cudgel or a truncheon? I always get a, one of the two. Is it a cudgel? Okay. Yeah. Um, which which he, he, he got it, he pried it from the cold, dead hands of a bobby in a 1972 riot in Leeds. You've heard of Leeds? Excellent. <laughs> Wonderful. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a, a Charlton Heston Second Amendment joke in there, but I didn't have time to polish it, so you could just uh, see me later. Um, I did not have time to polish it because I've been very, up until yesterday, actually, I was in Berlin doing research for my Bonhoeffer book. I know, you're curious. Um, for a week, ich war ein Berliner. Yeah. I actually ate a Berliner. That's a jelly donut. It's a jelly donut, but I ate it in Tübingen. But no matter where you eat it, JFK was wrong. You know that. Um, but I'm happy to say, this was amazing, Socrates in the City followed me all the way to Berlin. It was an amazing experience. My wife, Suzanne, my current wife, where are you, sweetie? Where is she? We went to Berlin. Um, we were there on Palm Sunday, and we wanted to go to a church service. And if you ask a concierge in a Berlin hotel, you know, where can I go to a church service? He sort of looks at you. It's as if you, you've asked him, where can I find a good medieval barber? I need a bloodletting. You know, they sort of look at you like, do they still do that? Uh, I don't know. I, it was, um, they're, they're not big on the whole faith thing over there in Berlin. And um, there are zillions of churches there, of course. Most of them aren't, you know, open for business, so to speak, right? They're just, they're just there. But finally, we, we did find a church where they were actually having church. Crazy, but they were. And um, it was the um, Berliner Dome. Maybe some of you know Berlin. Anybody, I'm curious. Anybody seen the Berliner Dome? You've heard of it? I just made it up. You're just, come on. What are you talking? There's no such thing as a Berliner Dome. Get out. Um, no, it's, it's, it's an absolutely gorgeous, huge, amazing uh, church. It was built by the Hohenzoll Hohenzollern dynasty. It was sort of their court cathedral. 
And if you've got a dynasty, you should get a court cathedral. It kind of comes with the, with the whole thing. But um, it was so big, it was, it was almost frightening. Suzanne and I stumbled past it a few nights before Palm Sunday, and it was dark, and we stumbled. And it was so big, I felt like, uh, you remember in Planet of the Apes when they, when they, they, they leave the space? This is another Charlton Heston thing, right? But they, where they come out and they see those giant figures, you know, that are just, you know, we're in trouble. This is too big. It's not our scale. But that's what the church was like. It was just absolutely... Huge, and on Palm Sunday morning, amazingly, uh, they were having a you know, church in there with theologically orthodox preaching, which was really stunning in a cathedral. And um, it was packed. It was, it, was, it was an amazing thing. But to say how Socrates in the city shadowed me to Berlin, right after communion, uh, you know, I was praying, and I opened my eyes, and walking right in front of me, there was Sir John Templeton. No, not Sir John Templeton, excuse me. The Templeton Prize-winning Sir John Polkinghorn, excuse me. John Polkinghorn just walked right in front of me. I thought, is this real? I mean, I'm in Berlin. I'm in, in, a, in a cathedral. Was it, it looked just like, you know, John Polkinghorn. And actually it was. Um, and he, um, he's spoken twice at Socrates in the city. And just a delightful, delightful man. And <clears throat> I, I started speaking to him after the service. I mentioned Socrates in the city. And when I said Socrates, he just lit up. And by the way, he said to say hello. Um, <laughs> Although, you know, he says, he says, hello, he says it like that. But um, it was just a joy. It was a joy to see him. It was funny and wonderful. And um, he told me he was at a conference in Berlin. Evidently, polymathic geniuses attend conferences around the world. That's just what they do. And um, I thought if ever there was a city in Europe where we ought to have a Socrates in the city, Berlin, I think, would be it. So I'm already working on that right now. Actually, right now. Um, but of course tonight, we don't have Sir John Polkinghorn. No, we have another brilliant British writer and thinker in our midst, Dr. Roger Scruton in the house. Rhymes with Putin, is that correct? <laughs> Does not rhyme with crouton, right? <laughs> Careful. Uh, any case, we're uh, very delighted um, to have him here this evening. Now, a word on what Socrates in the City is about for those of you who are new to us. Now, who is new to Socrates in the City? If you've not been to one before, would you raise your hand? So a number of you. So I can like make up anything right now. Um, uh, no, Socrates in the city. Actually, let me ask how many people are here tonight in general. If you're here tonight, would you raise your hand? It's like three. That's not right. Um, Socrates in the city. We got our idea for that in about 2000. I, I um, came up with this kooky idea. Socrates had said the unexamined life is not worth living. And I thought if ever there was a place where people were not inclined necessarily to examine their lives and the big things of life. It might be New York City. might not. Uh, if you're from New York, you know, I'm not trying to offend you personally, but people you hang out with, those kind of people, uh, don't want to think too deeply about why life has no meaning and they're pretending it, maybe it does or doesn't or it doesn't matter or something like that. I thought, let's, uh, let's have an event where we can examine the big questions, what I like to call life, God, and other small topics, right? I should trademark that because somebody's stealing it already. But um, we thought, you know, we could do that. We could ponder the big questions in the same way that Socrates did with a little wine and people laying around on couches, you know, what that's like. Um, and, of course, we've got everything but the couches. But we are we're working on that with the good folks at Huffman Coos. So keep that in your prayers, Huffman Coos. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, we wanted to have a, a place where we could talk about the big, big things, big questions, God and meaning and science and suffering and evil and why Albany has such a corrosive effect on the people who go there. And um, it's the city. It's the city. Um, but we didn't just want to ponder the big questions. We wanted to do it in a way that was fun. 
uh, and engaging. And um, I have over the years, I'm not sure why, I had the privilege of uh, knowing some extraordinary writers and thinkers. And I thought if I could just bring them to New York City and just introduce them and their books and their ideas, uh, I would be doing a great public service. I really think that that's uh, behind what, uh, that's the idea behind this, is just to expose people uh, to writers and thinkers who are just a little bit above what they're able to read. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> who are you kidding, sitting there? And, uh, and I thought if I could just do that, that would be good. Now, a lot of times that's just what this is. It's just an introduction, because especially uh, in the case of Roger Scruton, he's written so much um, that an evening here, it's just, a, it's a, just a tiny introduction to a great man and a host of ideas, um, but they're worth acquainting ourselves with, and that's my hope this evening, that you'll just get a taste, that you'll uh, buy uh, some of his books and get to know more about um, what he has to say and what he's thinking and continue the process on your own. Now tonight, um, Roger Scruton will be speaking about the so-called new atheism, which is a term coined to refer to the, I guess, to the recent spate of books by uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and the comedian David Brenner. That's right, David Brenner, yeah. All right, so some of you are paying attention. Isn't that excellent? Even with all the wine and everything, you're still paying attention. Um, now, I have to say I'm surprised that at Socrates and City we haven't dealt with uh, the so-called new atheism um, before. Os Guinness uh, talks about it a little bit in his book, um, what was it, the last book? Civility, when he spoke. But he didn't, he didn't talk on it in his talk, but he talks about it in his book, and it's worth talking about. Tim Keller uh, gets into it a little bit. Some of you know Dr. Tim Keller, and he's written a book, The Reason for God, and I think we'll probably have him here before very long to talk about that. Um, wonderful book. But um, it's a subject, the new atheism is a subject that I've been thinking about um, a lot. Now, Roger Scruton has debated uh, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins at the same time. Is that right? I'm not making this up. It's not some fantasy I've had. And he did it with one hand tied behind his back. Now listen. <laughs> and he was also simultaneously playing 12 chess champions and shearing a whole flock of sheep. And now, somebody should have videotaped that because I don't think that's been done before. But um, in all seriousness, this, it is an important subject, the new atheism, and I, uh, personally important to me, I, I had the sort of quirky, alloyed privilege of debating um, Christopher Hitchens on CNN, if you can call a sort of eight minutes a debate. But um, you can see the mayhem at my website, ericantaxis.com, but I find that... Uh, it, it, particularly in the case of, of Hitchens, at the heart of his venture to sort of um, discredit, in a way, the idea of, of, of faith, there's an irony, at least as far as I see it, um, and that is that he can often be very, very angry and emotional at the same time that he's arguing for sort of a return to, you know, reason, basically. I mean, it's sort of funny, but it's, it's, I, I've noticed it every time. I'm not sure uh, what Roger Scruton will have to say about that tonight, but it's, to me, a marked... Uh, irony. Um, I do think that the subject of whether God exists and the details uh, that uh, that follow are nothing could be more important than that. And I think that uh, a a serious, um, reasoned, even-handed uh, look into that subject is about as important as as anything could be, particularly at a time right now from both sides. I think that uh, we can learn 
uh, from each other. So I do really look forward to uh, what Dr. Scruton will have to say on this subject tonight. Now, how in the world can we sum up Roger Scruton? We can't, I'll tell you that. In addition to public debating and shearing, uh, he's done more things, uh, shearing, uh, he he's done more things than really uh, we could ever sum up. He's the very definition, as far as I can see, of a public intellectual. He's a philosopher, genuinely, and a public commentator. He's written 30 or so books on a host of subjects ranging from aesthetics to architecture. And actually, he wrote a book called The Aesthetics of Architecture. That's kind of show-offy. You didn't need to do that. That's, uh... But I, I thought, you know, rather than try to... I'll just read a couple of the books. This will give you an idea. This is just a handful of the 30-plus books. Um, a Short History of Modern Philosophy. He just popped that one off. Short History of Modern Philosophy. A Dictionary of Political Thought. Well, we've all written dictionaries on something or other. That's not really a big deal. Um, he's written a book called The Aesthetic Understanding. Uh, he's written a, written a book called Sexual Desire. i got to laugh, Roger. Well, what's the problem? You can't write books about that? Okay, he's written a book on Kant. He's written a book titled, well, titled Kant. He's written a book titled Spinoza. He's written a book titled Xanthippic Dialogues. Now, who knows who, yeah, you know, Socrates, Dialogues, right? Xanthippe, wife of Socrates. You see how they need you here, these people? They need you. He's written a book called Modern Philosophy. He's written a book called The Classical Vernacular, Architectural Principles in an Age of Nihilism. That's pretty impressive. Uh, he's written a book called Animal Rights and Wrongs. He's written a book called An Intelligent Person's Guide to Philosophy. He's written a book called The Aesthetics of Music and a book called On Hunting. He's, he's also written another book called An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture. And he's written a book called The Idiot's Guide to Sudoku. <laughs> that could be a typo. Uh, most recently, uh, he's written a book called Culture Counts, Faith and Feeling in a World Besieged, which uh, we have for sale. And right after um, uh, the talk, the evening, right after our Q&A, uh, he'll be signing uh, copies of that and any other of his books which you want to purchase um, right here. Okay, he's written articles for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's and National Review. He's a research professor at the Institute for the Psychological Sciences in Washington. He's held visiting positions at Princeton, Stanford, Cambridge, and a host of universities I admit I cannot pronounce. Uh, Gulf, Ontario, ringing any bells, Roger? You taught there, evidently. I can't pronounce it. Um, Vietersrand, v no, Vietwatersrand, South Africa. Anyway, uh, if you know how to pronounce that, see me later. But you get a general idea. I've embarrassed uh, Roger Scruton and certainly myself enough, so now it is my very great pleasure to introduce to you the wonderful Roger Scruton. Well, that's uh, a very hard act to follow. Uh, and um, luckily, I've got it all written out. So it's the bl I can blame it on the text in front of my eyes instead of my faulty improvisation. Uh, it's true that I have written quite a lot of books, uh, but when the, um, and I assumed when I saw none of them on the side there that they've all sold out. <laughs> but alas, they've never arrived in the bookshops. So I suspect that the publisher shares my worst opinion about them and has uh, failed to deliver them. 
But there are a couple that they managed to retrieve from a warehouse somewhere, and I would be happy to sign them if you feel you've got the patience to read them after hearing what I have to say. What I have to say is about a very serious topic, uh, the new atheism and how to confront it, not necessarily to confront it by refuting it or, to, or, or even uh, uh, by aggressively denouncing it, but simply how it should enter our lives and what kind of thoughts about the human condition it should give rise to. Uh, obviously, the, the most influential living example of this uh, is Richard Dawkins, but his message has been echoed by Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, uh, and it sounds as loud in the media today as the message of Luther in the Reformed churches of Germany. All faiths to these evangelical atheists are rooted in dogmas that can't be safely questioned. They all involve a flight from reason into fantasy, uh, and... Um, all of them pose a manifest danger to humanity by dividing believer from infidel, friend from foe, us from them, in ways that don't correspond, don't respond to rational argument. Uh, now, those of us who believe in something must face the challenge presented by these believers in nothing. It's not that the believers in nothing have a clean record when it comes to bigotry and belligerence. Atheists, uh, atheist and nihilist doctrines have, from the Jacobins to the Maoists, far outperformed the old religions when it comes to massacres and genocides. But to argue in those terms is to accept the weakest part of the atheist case. It's to accept that collective violence and massacres originate in beliefs and can be eliminated by replacing those beliefs with better ones. There's a kind of anthropological naivety in this. Uh, uh, the massacres and genocides that fill the pages of history have their origins in something far deeper than belief. And it's, I think it's one of the tasks of religion to face up to this deeper thing, to conjure it from the darkness, to wrestle with it, and to cast it out. Now, French atheism has had a decidedly literary, often satirical, also intensely lyrical side. From Diderot to Sartre, the French atheist has presented himself as the intellectual outsider, staring down satirically from his garret on the life of the street. But the new atheism, as experienced here in America especially, is not like that. It isn't stylish and dramatic uh, in the manner of Diderot, nor brooding and lyrical in the manner of Sartre. It is contemptuous towards believers but it presents its own position as one of straightforward common sense, fortified by rigorous science rather than as one of bohemian apartness. And its principal authority is the popular Darwinism of Richard Dawkins, uh, though it would have us believe that it is not dependent on any specific scientific theory, but is simply the logical consequence of taking science seriously in any age. Scientific method, according to the new atheist, simply rules out the God hypothesis. There are things that we cannot explain, so much it will admit. But that is exactly what they are, things that we cannot explain, either because they are inexplicable in principle or because our theories haven't got that far. If they are explicable, they are explicable by scientific laws specifying their physical causes. If they are inexplicable, then they are not explicable by invoking God. 
The God hypothesis, therefore, is redundant. It's a wheel that turns but which is disconnected from the mechanism. Now, those arguments actually have been familiar for 200 years, ever since the Enlightenment. But uh, the thinkers of the Enlightenment <clears throat> strove to rescue humanity from the threat posed by those thoughts. Uh, like Kant and even Hume in his way, they vested in the human person all the attributes that they had stripped from God. Freedom, goodness, transcendence, and in due course, a kind of immortality. This attitude is the very opposite of that taken by the new atheists. They have seized on the Darwinian theory, not only because it seems to exemplify the futility of the God hypothesis, but also because it reduces the human condition to something unremarkable. Dawkins' view that we are survival machines in the service of our genes is not embraced despite its debunking character, but because of its debunking character. This is the latest stage in the process of disenchantment, and disenchantment has a perverse kind of charm. There survives, in short, what William James called the will to believe, but it is a will to believe in nothing. So, hence, presented in the way that the atheists prefer, the genetic theory of the human condition makes all that is most valuable to us, all that we cherish and respect, seem like a redundant byproduct of a process that is in itself entirely meaningless. The Enlightenment placed man at the center of the universe at the place where God had been. It strove to rescue man from his own incipient nihilism. The new atheism places man on the periphery, precipitated out of the great turmoil of meaningless events, like the foam on the surface of a wave. It's not an effective response to this new atheism to argue for a god of the gaps, as it's called. In other words, to point to the unexplained features of our condition and to invoke God as the comprehensive explanation. A god whose existence is guaranteed by a gap in our explanations will vanish just as soon as the gap is filled. Of course, it may never be filled. Meanwhile, however, God exists in a kind of ontological insecurity, no more firmly grounded in the realm of being than the fairies in Ireland or the 600,000 laughing gods of the Hindus. I think it is for this reason that people are so often reluctant to attach their faith to some theory, some version of the theory of intelligent design. Doing so both concedes too much to the Darwinian polemic by admitting that faith stands or falls according to our view of evolution, and at the same time exposes the God hypothesis to the possibility of a refutation against which it should have been made forever secure. So how should we respond to the new atheism? The argument, it seems to me, is not with the scientific view of the universe, nor with Darwin's theory of evolution or its supplement from modern genetics. The argument is, in the first instance, with the reductive view of the human condition. There is, throughout the literature of the new atheism, a systematic redescription of people and their predicament, a description designed to make the fairy tale explanations of our conduct, which the atheists favor and indeed require, more plausible. Consider the ongoing debate concerning altruism. Whole volumes of uh, the uh, biological literature are filled with this debate. What is altruism, and how is it to be explained? 
Intellectual honesty would tell us that the first of those questions, what is altruism, should be answered before the second, how do we explain it? We should provide a correct description of the phenomenon before venturing on discovering its causes. But that's not how the atheists proceed. In this case, as in almost every similar case, they reverse the priorities, first offering an explanation and then tailoring their description of the phenomenon in order to fit it. Uh, the explanation of altruism is that it is what is called an evolutionarily stable strategy. It enhances the reproductive potential of the genes contained in the organism that exhibits it. The altruistic organism builds networks of cooperation which provide protection to its offspring, and so on. So what is altruism then? Well, it's that kind of behavior, the behavior which, in the normal run of events, provides indirect protection to the offspring of the one who engages in it. Similar explanations are offered for all kinds of distinguishing features of the human condition, morality, the aesthetic sense, religion, and so on. A whole phony subject has emerged which has the production of these explanations as its goal. It is now called evolutionary psychology, which is the phrase has replaced sociobiology. It's att attracted to itself skilled writers like Steven Pinker, Matt Ridley, Jeffrey Miller, and, so and many more, whose popular appeal consists less in their explanations of human phenomena than in their ability to re-describe those phenomena in ways that make explanation easy. But it's evident that altruism has nothing to do with securing the cooperation of others in the reproductive strategies of one's genes. It consists, on the contrary, in the free adoption of another's interests, in full consciousness of them as the interests of another, and with no other desire than to further them. It is a motive unknown in the animal kingdom, even though it has the genetically beneficial effects that supposedly explain it, just like the suicidal behavior of the soldier ant or the aggression of the she-bear in defense of her cubs and all the other instances that are familiar to ethologists. Its distinctive character as altruism, the caring for another in full consciousness of his otherness, is in no way required by this uh, genetic advantage, and hence in no way explained by it. Altruism, as we know it, is a sufficient condition for a certain kind of reproductive success, but it is not a necessary condition, so that its existence is not explained by its genetic contribution. A similar objection can be made to virtually all the Darwinian fairy tales, as the philosopher David Stove described them, which have been spun by the evolutionary psychologists. They work by re-describing the human condition with the crucial component left out, the component that has been variously described down the ages as rationality, personality, freedom, and soul. Hence, they habituate us to looking on people as we look on other organisms, to the point that no obstacle seems to remain to accepting Dawkins' view of us as mere survival machines in the service of our genes. But it is precisely the existence of this distinguishing component that propels us, or propels people generally, in the direction of faith. The astonishing fact about our universe is that it contains us, creatures who are conscious of self and other, who make free choices, who have knowledge of right and wrong, who relate to each other not through force but through rational dialogue, blaming and praising and assuming responsibility for what they do.
It is easy to explain these things if you substitute for them the kind of depersonalized caricature that is so often the starting point of evolutionary psychology. But if you allow to them their full reality and recognize the enormous gap in the scheme of things that the human condition represents, you will see that we have a long way to go before explaining them. This is not to rule out the possibility of an evolutionary explanation, but such an explanation would have to describe correctly the thing that needs to be explained, and not to reduce it to something simpler, purely in order to explain it. Moreover, the astonishing thing about our universe, that it contains us, is not rendered less astonishing by the hypothesis that this state of affairs emerged over time and from other conditions just makes those other conditions equally astonishing. Rational beings ask for the why of things. But this question is not one question. Without becoming technical, we can surely distinguish at least three reasons for asking why. One is to explain, another is to justify, a third is to understand. Causes Goals and meanings all offer answers to the question why. And only the first of those causes lies within the province of science as we understand it. The medievals recognized this and saw science as both authoritative in its own sphere but also incomplete. Uh, of course, they had a false notion of scientific method, but they were right to think that there will be questions that are left unanswered when the science has all been done. And one of these questions is the question of being. Why is there anything in the first place? Now, explaining something does not necessarily help us to understand it. And this is especially true of the kinds of explanation favored by the new atheists who wish to explain the entire human condition in terms of reproductive fitness. Suppose we explain the emergence of mathematical competence in that way. People have acquired mathematical competence because, possessing it, they are more likely to survive long enough to reproduce than if they didn't possess it. And that's obvious. Mistakes in mathematics can be fa fatal. <laughs> what, what an empty explanation that is, of course. It amounts to little more than the maxim that if a thing is true, you had better believe it. But it's no worse than the favored ex explanation of our aesthetic sense. As, as being part of the mechanism of sexual display, whereby men exhibit their reproductive fitness to women. Beethoven composing the Ninth Symphony was basically doing the same thing as the peacock displaying his tail. He didn't have quite the same luck. <laughs> uh, similarly, Gödel proving the incompleteness of arithmetic was doing the same thing as the crow who avoids the bush into which five men walked, but out of which only four emerged. Such explanations have two major faults, and they apply to all the Darwinian fairy tales. First, they don't explain how mathematical or aesthetic talent arises, but only why, once arisen, it tends to remain, uh, a contestation the validity of which it hasn't needed biology to tell us. Secondly, they do not give an account of mathematical understanding or make any real distinction between the man who possesses it and the crow who does not. We rational beings can ask why the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides, and we may spend a whole lifetime failing to understand. That is not to ask for a causal explanation. It is to ask for illumination 
in the form of a rational argument. Likewise, we can ask, for example, why Beethoven chooses to interrupt the last movement of his Ninth Symphony with that sudden discord. Why the right hand of Michelangelo's David is so disproportionately large. Why Shakespeare used rhyme in his comedies and blank verse in his tragedies, and so on. The word why here is not asking for a cause, but for a reason, a reason addressed to the aesthetic sense which is a sense that no animal has. To answer the question why is take a, to take a step towards understanding something. And it is only in a context where we distinguish understanding from misunderstanding that such a question makes sense. Now all that may, may seem obvious, but it gives us a clue to what the new atheists are really up to and why their pseudo-explanations of evolutionary psychology have such a charm for them. They are trying to eliminate from our world the very possibility of understanding its purpose or its meaning by allowing only one sense to the question why, the sense in which it asks for a causal explanation, explanation in terms of cause and effect. They are attempting to close off the other paths which that question opens, paths which have God at the end of them. Now that these paths exist and that they lead in such a direction is something which I think can be established. Suppose a judge asks the accused, why did you stick a knife in your victim? And he replies, because electrical impulses originating in activity of the prefrontal cortex caused neurons to fire through my spinal cord, finally tr triggering the muscular spasm that pushed forward the hand holding the knife, so causing it to enter his body. That is true, of course, but it is not what the judge was asking. He was seeking a reason, not a cause. He wanted to understand the action in terms of its goal and was also inviting the accused not so much to explain himself as to justify what he did. Because he was threatening to set off a bomb would be the right kind of answer. Now, the distinction here, though obvious, is not easy to define in a comprehensive way but it is one of a, a network of distinctions that are entirely familiar to us in our ordinary common sense dealings with each other, which don't need philosophy uh, to establish them. There is the distinction between a mere movement of the body and an action, the distinction between my arm rising and me raising my arm, not a visible distinction from the place where you are looking, but of course, it, in context, a very important distinction. A more interesting example, the distinction between a smile and a grin. Animals grin, but they never smile. <clears throat> For smiles from reason flow and are of love the food, as Milton puts it in Paradise Lost. That's a real distinction, the distinction between a grin and a smile, when you read a smile, you're, re you're reading the personality behind it and the, the rational conception of the world which is expressed in that movement of the lips. There's a distinction between predicting something and deciding on it. If I asked you whether you're going to get drunk tonight and you said, well, I generally do, so I expect I will, um, <laughs> that is a prediction. But if I said, certainly not, that is a decision which will obviously later be uh, rescinded. <laughs> in all these things, we distinguish, we distinguish that which expresses the person 
from that which is merely of the body, so to speak. Of the person, we can ask why in another sense from the why asked of his body. Why are you not going to get drunk? You know, uh, because I really want to prepare my lecture for tomorrow morning. That is the person speaking. Uh, the body, however, has got other ideas, although it's not ideas exactly that motivate it. We seek to understand a person as a conscious being revealed to himself and living out his sense of self. And this is deep down what we mean by freedom. And that's what is animating our sense of these distinctions that are so obvious to us in day-to-day life, the distinction between the free being and the unfree being. But note that these distinctions I've been referring to do not reduce merely to a distinction between what is voluntary and what is involuntary. There are involuntary changes which only free beings can undergo, which are, as it were, revelations of the selfhood or personality of the agent. Smiling is one of them. A voluntary smile is somehow not a smile, but a grin. For it doesn't reveal the inwardness of a person's feeling. For a smile to be genuine, it has to be compelled from you by the thing that you're observing, by love, tenderness, or amusement. Another example, even more interesting, is blushing. No animal has ever blushed, uh, though blushing is always involuntary. It's a, a voluntary red, reddening of the cheeks would not be a blush, but a kind of theatrical trick, an attempt at deception. Someone who could blush at will, so to speak, would thereby exhibit a profound loss of innocence. He would be standing back from his embarrassments so as no longer fully to receive them as his. And even animals with translucent skin that can redden on the surface of that skin, like pigs, have never been accused of blushing because there is no consciousness of a fault which would motivate them to do so. So it's interesting that blushing is also a bodily event, one that requires us to exist as animals, and which occurs in those very organs, the blood vessels, which are the conduits of animal life. Uh, But nevertheless, it's something only we, free beings, can do. So it's, it's a vivid symbol of our embodiment, what Christians call our incarnation, a bodily change that can only be understood as an expression of a complex rational thought involving self and other. If you blush, it's because you are falling under the gaze of others like yourself and feel answerable to them and feel also unable to satisfy what it is that they're demanding of you. Now, when one person looks at another, this may be in one of several ways. There is the look of idle curiosity. There is the look of appreciation, whether of somebody's good looks or their good nature or whatever. There's the look of love. There's the look of judgment. And there's a vast difference between looking at another person's eyes, as we do all the time in conversation, and looking into those eyes, as we do only in special circumstances and only at risk to ourselves. You need need permission to look into another's eyes or else you run the risk of offending him. And, of course, looking into uh, uh, another person's eyes is characteristic of erotic feeling and is something which, therefore, is a kind of violation when carried out uh, without the permission of the object. Now, there are many subtleties here, and one of the tasks of philosophy is to lay them out in a systematic way 
to make general sense of the human person as an embodied creature and to show how this radically transforms our sense of ourselves and of each other. And that is the very opposite of the reductivist view of the human person adopted by the new atheists. It involves recognizing the human person not as an organism only, but as the embodiment of a free individual, a creature whose actions, goals, and relations are governed by a sense of self and other, and by obligations and responsibilities and by a knowledge of right and wrong. You can recognize this extraordinary fact without denying that we are part of the natural world and as such the products of processes and laws which govern the world as a whole. And you can accept our conformity to the laws of nature without re-describing the human condition as the atheists re-describe it with the person left out. How you reconcile these two views that we have of ourselves as persons and as animals is, of course, a philosophical question. But it must be possible to reconcile them since they are both true, and all truths are, by their nature, compatible. Moreover, it isn't a philosophical invention to describe human beings as I've been describing them. It is just plain common sense given to us in the very workings of our language, just as soon as we ask of each other the question, why? Which is the first question on the lips of a child. You can easily verify the truth of this by observing what happens to human relations when people try to live by the reductivist vision that the atheists recommend. And I'll take an example that I've written about, which is sexual desire. Common sense tells us that sexual desire is desire for another person, a cherishing of his or her embodiment, that it has the interpersonal and compromising character described by Milton in that famous book of Paradise Lost, describing Adam's, Adam and Eve as they awaken to each other. And it has a course towards fulfillment, and it's fulfilled not by some physical sensation, but by the willing and mutual surrender of the two people involved. That's obvious and has been obvious down the ages you don't have to have recourse to literature in order to confirm that description because we carry it all in our own hearts but it needs a certain effort therefore to eradicate it to replace it with the reductivist vision of sex as a mere meeting of organs for the purpose of physical pleasure to get to this point it needed the efforts of Kinsey and his followers in America and the programs of sex education which they inspired the main effect and goal of which was to replace sexual desire, as it had been previously known, with a wooden caricature from which all personhood and personal responsibility has been eliminated. And this vision, once adopted, immediately changed the nature of human sexual feeling. The tie between desire and personality was loosened. The forming of human relations dropped out of consideration and the orgasm replaced the person as the object of pursuit. And I think we are now living with the damage that this conception has done to the fundamental bond, the bond of eros, on which our human world depends. And we're not pleased with the results. In conclusion, let me return to the new atheists and the response that they require. I have said that people can be understood in two ways, as organisms, subject to the laws of biology, and as persons who choose freely, who are responsible for their actions and who relate to each other, I to I, or I to thou. 
Another way of putting the point is that we look on the human form both as a natural object, part of the great system of the universe, and also as a revelation of the free individual who smiles or frowns in the face. This second way of looking at people is the right way. It's the way that is required by personal relations and therefore by our own freedom, by the freedom of the observer. And when we see another in this way, uppermost in our thoughts is our sense of creativity, of this individual as the origin of his own actions and relations, the free creator of his own segment of our shared human world. Now, the new atheists have a peculiar view of religion, one that is a survival of the 19th century theories of magic. Dawkins, Pinker, and Hitchens all see religions as attempts to explain the world in terms of occult powers and to gain control over those powers so as to turn them in our own favor. Religion, for them, is a superstitious substitute for science. Uh, in fact, however, the great tradition of religious thinking, uh, which begins with the Upanishads and includes works like the Book of Job, St. Augustine's City of God, the poems of Rumi and Hafiz and a thousand other sources, that great tr tradition of religious thinking sees the natural world exactly as science sees it, as a self-contained system whose laws of motion must be discovered and which cannot be manipulated by wizardry or spells. But that religious tradition is quite compatible with seeing the world in another way as well. We can ask more than one question why of each other. The why of explanation does not rule out the why of reason or the why of meaning. And we can ask more than one question why of the world. Just as when we approach each other with the why of reason, the freedom and creativity of the other suddenly appears in his features like a revelation. So too, when we approach the world in search of its justification or its meaning, we find God revealed as its free creator. This is as instinctive and natural to us as our recognition of the other as a free individual. And even if we don't conceptualize our intuitive response to creation in the terms of some given a monotheistic religion, the tendency exists to do just that. Moreover, it is very obvious that this spontaneous personal relation that springs up between the rational individual and the freedom that shines forth from the natural world is continuous with our moral sense. It fills us with the knowledge that right and wrong, as we intuitively understand them, are also acknowledged by the world as a whole. Now, if we return to what I said earlier about the reductivist view of the human person, we will recognize, I think, that reductivism, while it purports to be objective science, is in fact profoundly motivated. It is itself a kind of recourse to wizardry and spellmongering. There is a desire to wipe away the smile, to remake the human being without the face, to see the skull beneath the skin. For there is a desire to escape the reach of that other question why, the question that I can address to the world in full consciousness of its, of its meaning, only if I also address it to myself. It is an arresting question. It calls me to account and says, wait, be still, account for your life. All reductivism, it seems to me, involves a flight from that kind of question. 
If human beings are nothing but survival machines in the service of their genes, then I cannot meaningfully call them to account and therefore cannot be called to account myself. I can escape the burden of personality and live in another way. And if the universe is nothing but the mute and law-governed machine of which we human beings are a byproduct, then nothing that it contains can call me to account either. Disenchantment means liberation, though liberation of a strange and contradictory kind premised on the denial of freedom. But now, in conclusion, a qualification. We shouldn't complacently assume that there is, after all, no conflict between science and religion. I think there is a conflict, but it's been misidentified by the atheists. Religions make claims, often outrageous claims, about the nature of reality, not all of which can be true. Moreover, religious beliefs are quite unlike scientific beliefs in a fundamental respect, namely that they form the foundations of communities. A religion does not merely offer a vision of the nature and purpose of the universe, it offers membership. It is something you join or are born into, and many of its comforts are directly owing to this fact. You celebrate your membership by means of rituals that must be endlessly repeated and whose function, anthropologically speaking, is to re-immerse you in the community, to purge you of your apartness, to put you once again in communion with those with whom you belong. That is why apostasy is so painful, why conversion requires an ecstatic leap, and why parents bring up their children in their faith. It is also why religions are so harsh on heretics. If a belief offers membership, then it must be protected from those who reject it, for they will be, by their nature, intruders into the sacred space. And I think that is why religions worry far more about heresy, the enemy within, than about straightforward unbelief. And the persecution of heretics is one way in which you can tell that a belief has crossed the boundary from science to religion. Marxism and Freudianism uh, both exhibit this. Both of them lapsed from their scientific pretensions just as soon as their followers decided to build communities that depended upon accepting them. At once, the witch hunts began, in the case of Marxism, with devastating consequences, in the case of Freudianism, only with temporary damage to the psyche of New York. <laughs> but how, how should we respond to this? It seems to me that we are all as children of the Enlightenment, bound to be troubled by this, whether we are religious or not. Membership distinguishes us from them. It assembles people in ranks, primed for competition and eventually for conflict. If wrongly treated, membership is the enemy of toleration. And yet it is something for which we hunger, a demand that even the new atheists feel as we can surmise from their attempts to spread their gospel. And it seems to me that this is the real task before religious believers today, not to refute the atheists or to dress up again the old arguments of Avicenna and Aquinas for the existence of a necessary being. The task is to show how you can see the world as issuing from the hand of a creator, how you can join with others who share that vision and trace the many ways in which we can come to understand and love God so as to enjoy all the comforts of religion, membership included, 
and yet recognize that we do indeed see all this through a glass darkly, and that while we may be justified in dying for our faith, we can never be justified in killing others for theirs. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have uh, some time uh, for Q&A, as we often do. Uh, so if you'd like to ask a question, uh, make your way to the Not that quickly, Jerry. That was too quick. Make your way to the microphone and uh, ask your question. Keep your question in the form of a question, okay, about 20 syllables max. And in the interest of time, if you could just do multiple choice tonight, that would be better. Okay? Uh, Jerry. This is multiple choice. Thank you very much for your remarks. Uh, I'm curious if you could describe your own personal faith, if any, and if it's, uh, if it's involving one of the revealed scriptured religions, why that particular one instead of another, or why not simple deism? That's a very good question. Uh, and in answer to it, I'd say I had the very good fortune to be brought up in the Anglican faith, which requires you to do certain things, but has no specific requirements, as far as I can see, on anything else. Uh, and uh, it, the Anglican faith is a wonderful compromise. It describes itself uh, as the, uh, in its own creed as the Catholic Church, while militantly denouncing uh, Roman Catholicism and anything else that goes by that name. Uh, and, of course, very famously has moved with the times on every possible issue to do with the survival of England, which is its main purpose. Uh, so uh, it's a very convenient position to be born into. It does, nevertheless, uh, in the end, uh, depend, as you uh, wisely indicate, on revealed scriptures. My own view is that there cannot be a religious attitude that doesn't in the end depend on revelation. How that revelation comes and through what channels is a great question. And I think that, uh, to, to put it simply, we human beings obtain what revelation we can through the accidental workings of history. I happen to be born in England and be granted this particular avenue to the sense uh, of the created nature of the world and be offered with it various sacred words, words, words that have been made sacred by people's use of them in worship, through which to address my own inquiries to the infinite abyss. Other people born elsewhere would, of course, uh, not be granted that particular revelation, uh, and it can't have been part of God's purpose to deny them, nevertheless, access to him. So I have an eclectic view as to how one should approach revelation in general. Hi, I've uh, been uh, reading your articles for years, and I really like your writing. Um, you uh, made a point briefly, which I've heard from other sources, which I've always thought was a good one, pointing out that secular regimes, especially over the 20th century, seem to have been as violent or more so than uh, religiously based ones. What um, these authors seem to be saying, if I understand correctly, though, in rebuttal lately, is that, um, well, by calling them atheist regimes, you're defining them by what they don't believe, whereas, in fact, they're setting up alternate belief systems that are 
quasi-religious in character, so it's not fair to lay their body count at the feet of atheism. So how, how uh, might one respond to that? Uh, well, I, I would respond by saying, yes, that's right. In just the way that it's not fair to lay the body count of religious regimes at the feet of religion. It's something else that causes us to massacre each other. Uh, there's something deeper in us that requires uh, you know, that competition for territory and the elimination of the rival. Uh, and that's an anthropological question that, and is not settled by identifying beliefs and, or features of beliefs. Of course, there are beliefs that make it easier to kill other people, uh, or, uh, beliefs which categorize people as less than human, the Nazi beliefs about the Jews, communist beliefs about the bourgeoisie and so on, those are quite helpful if you've got a lot of killing to do. Thank you. Mm. We'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Mm, Hi there. Yeah. Um, by, by way of background, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Christ. And what I'm having trouble with um, lately in a conversation that I had with somebody who clearly isn't is trying to understand why, um, why it matters so much to some of these guys who've written all these books. If, if they really believe that there's nothing, why, why do they spend so much time writing about it and putting so much effort into it if they really don't believe? Mm. No, I, I mean, no, I mean this very genuinely. I'm really not being sarcastic, because I, I had this very difficult discussion pre-Easter with somebody, and, I, and I'm really trying to get it. Why, like, why do they care so much? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. That I, um, I, I would say that uh, nothing is a far bigger something than it looks. Um, <laughs> you know, um, the, a lot of things. There's a lot of things that are done for the sake of nothing, uh, and people will put a lot of energy. Into it, and indeed, perhaps um, more is done for nothing than is done for something. <laughs> I, and if you believe in the Christian revelation, then of course, then that's a perfect description of the devil's work, isn't it? Uh, and uh, Goethe said, put those the words into famous words into Mephistopheles' mouth in Faust. You know that I am the spirit that always negates or always denies. Uh, uh, and um, I think that's a is a description of, as far as we understand the concept of the devil, that is what it, it's all about, about negating things. And we all have that temptation in us uh, to negate things. In your lecture, you spoke about the difference between men and animals quite a bit. Um, mm. I apologize for the extreme elementary nature of my question, but um, when speaking of the difference between plants and animals and humans, they will often describe, I've heard it described just in lay people's terms, the difference between body, soul, and spirit. Um, spirit being what humans have, including reason, and then um, animals mm. having perhaps a personality, including a will and, and personality, which even my parakeet has a will. How do you have a will if you don't have reason? Um, and then would you describe those categories as body, soul, and spirit as not being correct terms? Well, they're, they're very um, respectable terms because um, you know, they've been in the language for an awful long time. Uh, and I totally endorse the view that there is a kind of hierarchy 
of being, from plants to animals and then on towards humans. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what words you use to, to describe this, as long as you give the correct account of what, those dif- what the differences are. Uh, now, o- obviously, animals do have, depending on the degree of sophistication, have a lot of the mental capacities that we have. They, ha- they, they can suffer pain, fear. Um, they have beliefs of an elementary kind and so on. But they don't have these crucial things that I was talking about, the sense of self, the sense of uh, the fully developed sense of other, uh, and the possibility of rational dialogue, the ability. Uh, and the, uh, what is interesting, what, the reason why I took examples like smiling and blushing, is that those very, really very basic bodily responses are things that only a free being can have. And that is very, it's odd, that. Extremely odd, but nevertheless, it's, it's true once you think about it. Yeah. This has never happened before. Oh gosh! And I think you've gone over the heads of a lot of a lot of the people here. <laughs> but uh, maybe we have somebody else bravely going to the microphone. This is tough stuff for this crowd. I know. Normally, the speakers are more more of it. You get, oh, please use the microphone. It's a uh, it's electric. <laughs> Actually, I will. And part is the fact that you asked, brought up the issue answering a question which I believe was brief, but a twofold question, part of which is it seems to me that you characterize religious belief based on where one comes from and whether there is some sort of instrument by which we can evaluate religious belief of the pref- what is preferable among various religious beliefs and also if that same instrument also allows us to purify and correct um, that within our religious belief, which is abusive. I'm, well. mm. Yeah. Your question is, is there any self-correcting device with, contained within a religion, or must all religions be corrected from outside, so to speak, by the, by the skeptical unbeliever? And I, I think that's a very important question. And I take it that our Judeo-Christian tradition, as it contained within the Bible, does involve a continually evolving conception, not only of who God is, but of what he wants from us. Uh, And later books criticize earlier books, and obviously the New Testament is a radical revision of things previously thought to be absolutely authoritative. Uh, And this sense of uh, critical engagement with religion and what it demands from us is contained in the Christian parables. Uh, and maybe some people complain about Islam, but it doesn't have quite the same internal uh, process of correction, although that is a, a, dis- a disputed point. Uh, it certainly doesn't have the same kind of ability to correct itself in the face of, of radical changes in the surrounding world. Of course, it is part of the point of religion that it stands in judgment of the surrounding world, and so it doesn't change simply in order to endorse whatever happens to be happening. You know, and that is an important feature of it. The Anglican Church, which I referred to earlier, um, certainly in its American Episcopalian version, does have the tendency to shape its doctrine according to what people happen to want, you know, which, seems, which is the negation of the, of the, of the Christian message. 
You may not want to go here, but could you speculate about the political motivations of the new atheists? Um, well, they, they, they don't seem to belong to any particular political faction. Uh, um, interestingly enough, Christopher Hitchens is the only manifestly political being among them, uh, and he has espoused uh, quite a few distinct causes which have nothing in common apart from the fact you can get angry about them. <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe that is the ultimate explanation. But he's a... Uh, Dawkins and Pinker, for instance, are fairly conservative in their outlook on, you know, on the human condition, as, as anybody who takes evolutionary biology seriously must be. Uh, but um, they'd, they're not politically active. I wouldn't suspect a plot. I mean, I, I'm, as, I'm as paranoid as the next man, but here I, I think it, it's all pretty well above board. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the media's response to new atheism and how you think and why you think that has been the way it is? Mm. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think uh, obviously 9-11 got people thinking about religion and what it as a major force in human life. Uh, and um, one response to this is to think you know, if, if, if religion was what caused that terrible crime, Let's um, let's look around for the weak versions of it and hit it on the head, you know. Uh, and so they people look around for the uh, fairly tenuous and uh, and uh, um, failing belief of their neighbours and decide to eliminate that. And, and that's part of human nature that you are, if you want to, you know, if you are threatened, you go on attack. And if you're going on attack, you look for the weaker version rather than the stronger version of the thing to attack. And I think that a lot of the media response was, uh, was motivated in that way. It also happens that, that um, there is a, someone like Dawkins and uh, Hitchens, they, they write well. You know, they're good, good coverage. You know, uh, people can read what they say. Um, whereas Canon Polkinghorn, bless him, uh, to whom you referred so uh, rightly, does not read in the, quite the sexy, uh, pugnacious way that would be required to give an effective response. He certainly couldn't be an op-ed's column in the Times or something like that. Roger, um, one could hypothesize that the, there is an increased prevalence of atheism, or shall we say secularism, in a world in which man has greater power over his surroundings and over nature. Um, if this hypothesis is true or has validity, given our exponential, the exponential increase in man's power over nature through the progress of technology mm. over time, is there a point at which unbelief reaches an asymptote or do these things continue to correlate into infinity? Mm. Well, it is interesting to observe that this power over nature is uh, maximally observable here in America. But America is one of the most religious uh, countries in the modern world. Um, we in Europe 
have less power over nature but still, and, uh, and less belief. So, uh, so I think it's not quite as simple as that. Though it is certainly true that the more people, the more comforts people have, the more they can insulate themselves against disaster, the less they're in, inclined to go down on their knees uh, and implore forgiveness for their manifest faults. You know, because um, you don't think, you know, if you think you can ward off disaster, you stop thinking about why you deserve it. Uh, you spoke about the, uh, the incompleteness of the reductive anthropology mm. of the new atheism mm. and uh, the distinction of freedom, which comes with a, a more complete understanding of the individual. I wonder if you could comment on the difference between that vision of freedom and the Sartrean lyrical um, mm. romantic notion of freedom uh, put forth in that version of atheism. Well, it's very interesting you should say that because, uh, of course, Sartre's um, philosophy is entirely Christian in its con concepts. Um, he defines himself as the, someone who believes that existence comes before essence. You know, and when I first read that as a, uh, a schoolboy, I thought, what on earth is he talking about? Only later did I realize that he was adopting language from medieval theology, which says, of course, that essence comes first and then existence afterwards. Uh, he was simply reversing the, uh, a standard piece of Christian doctrine. And his view of freedom is entirely uh, based on St. Augustine's conception of it in, in um, uh, The City of God. So Sartre, in effect, was uh, trying to, if you like, to, to um, re-express the Christian vision of the human condition without God. Uh, and yet, everything that he retained was something which simply uh, emphasized the God-shaped hole in the middle of his philosophy. You gave an elegant account of your vision of a diversity of revelation, such mm. that you might have revelation uh, as an Englishman, and that is appropriate for you, but there might be another revelation for somebody mm. else that in their circumstances can be nonetheless be recognized as revelation, albeit very different from yours. And that's right, that could be a very appealing uh, avenue towards tolerance and religious freedom. It may be peculiarly Anglican, however. Uh, do you have any thoughts as to how this vision of the diversity of legitimate revelation uh, can be shared, spread, should it be, etc. Well, it's not only Anglican. Uh, the, the Sufis had the same conception, uh, and in Rumi's poetry, uh, and Hafiz as well, you get quite an elaborate uh, exposition of, of this idea of revelation. That, that God, after all, is, he is the light at the, uh, the, from which all our lives are illuminated, uh, and into that light we cannot directly stare. Uh, only, only through its shadows, the shadows that it casts, can it be known. And those shadows are going to be different depending where the light falls. Uh, and Rumi was a, um, extremely, not, not, not only did he preach toleration, but he uh, actually thought that uh, in the end, uh, all these separate revelations and the sects that depended upon them would be cast aside in the moment of illumination 
they are only uh, ladders which we, uh, through which we ascend and we uh, throw them away when we've got there. 